Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. I'm excited to have Eric Jorgensen, who's a PKist and is the CEO of Strip Media. Uh, he was on the founding team of Zali and is also the author of the book, Almanac of Naval Ravikant, uh, and the new book, Anthology of Paraji. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks for having me back. It's awesome. You know, uh, since since we spoke uh, last time, a lot of things have changed. You you know, you moved on from your from your full time job. You uh, uh, you started your own fund uh, podcast, and and congrats on becoming uh, the CEO of Skype Media. How how did that happen? Thank you. Yeah, it's been a it's been a weird three years um, since we sort of had that last startup exit, and I just went into it kind of working on my own projects for a while. Um, Honestly, I credit a lot of it to the first book, The Almanac and Evolve, right? I think that, that a direct outcome of that was the podcast was starting the venture fund. And it's certainly what led to me becoming CEO of Scribe. Um, I had an amazing experience. They, they Tucker Max uh, was kind of the lead there then, and he helped me get that first book published. They did an amazing job, helped me get it out into the world. And I had an amazing experience. So I immediately started writing a second book and talking to friends about scribe. And then I heard rumors sort of recently that they were running into financial trouble. Um, and that it turned out that the previous CEO had really mismanaged, um, the company. And I brought the idea to some friends, um, who work, who have a private holding company. They ended up doing some diligence, loved what they saw, bought the company. And very much to my surprise, I was just trying to keep the company alive because I love using them as an author. And then, they gave me a call and said, Hey, do you, you, we think you should come be CEO of this company. And I was like, Oh, uh, let me talk to my wife. <laughs> so, uh, did some soul searching, thought hard about it. And I, I think books are sacred. I love working on them. I love helping authors. And I think scribe is a really, uh, good example and an early leader in where publishing is going. And I'm really proud to kind of be a part of that and help people, help authors create great works that they own, that they control and get the full financial upside and just be able to build the book that they want and use it how they want. I think there's great things that come from that as my story shows. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think it's, it's super, super interesting, uh, you know, what, what you've been able to achieve. Uh, just wondering, you know, when it comes to the book, Almanac of Naval Ravikant, how, how many, how many books were you able to sell? I I did the math recently. I think it's over a million across all of the different translations, all the territories and all the formats. Um, it's, it's honestly a little tough to know exactly, but I think it's there. And then the free digital versions have reached certainly millions more. Um, it's every corner of the globe. I'm, I'm so blown away by the response to that book and all the people that has reached and the messages I've gotten is like blown my mind. I thought I was just doing like a small project for a group of nerds that, you know, also love Naval, you know, I had no idea it was going to turn into what it turned into. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think when I was discussing about the book, uh, you interestingly talked about different leverages and it's still on my mind, like the capital leverage, the knowledge leverage, uh, the media leverage, um, uh, and, and the labor leverage. So I think, uh, I think you've been able to, you know, capitalize on that. You, you build a rolling fund and, and a media podcast um, are, are you going to look at keep building on the rolling fund and the investment fund at the same time? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly thinking about capital leverage is what drew me a little more towards investing from the Almanac and Naval. And I almost immediately started working on the anthology Abology and that the ideas in that pushed me within my investing even more sort of towards the frontier and the deep tech. Um, you know, the very first chapter of the book is the point of building a startup is to build something that money can't buy right now. Money can't buy you a ticket to Mars. It can't buy you, you know, a cure to cancer. Um, and the point of building a startup and the startups that are worth investing into me are the ones who are adding a net new capability to humanity and really pushing those frontiers. It's not, hey, we think we've got like a slightly better software for, you know, dog salon management. And yeah, that may have a financial return, but it's not the stuff that excites me. And it's not the things that move humanity forward in quite as much as, you know, a drone construction company or nuclear uh, fission micro reactors or some of the other things we've been able to invest in recently. Right, right. So, so super interesting. And um, you know, when it comes to 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 Balaji, I think uh, almost everyone in the startup world knows about him. He was formerly the CEO of Coinbase and partner Anderson Horowitz. But but why a book on him? You know, it could be a book on anyone, but why uh, on him specifically? Yeah, Balaji is. I mean, he he stands out as unique, even in an industry full of unique people, right? Um, he is consistently uncomfortably far ahead, I think, of kind of the modern discourse. And the way he introduces himself in the introduction is like, he's the id of technology. Um, and I, Mark Andreessen put it well, I think, in an interview with him, he's talking about biology. He says, when biology is wrong, it's because he over-extrapolates, not under-extrapolates, right? He takes an idea to 11 when maybe in reality it stops at a five or a six or something like that. And mm -hmm. I think for all the people that there are out there to learn from, and um, and there are many people to admire and to respect and to learn from, Balaji to me just represents someone who's so far out in the future that he's the extremeness there, I find really useful. Like it's much easier for me who might naturally only be able to think to a three to learn to think to a five or a six when I see him think to an 11. I'm like, oh, that's how you go. Like, and therefore, and therefore, and therefore, and see the ripple effects of some of these new technologies and how far out they go. You just learn to, it's a new lens on the world. You learn to, um, I don't know, pick up some new mental models. And I think it helps me as an investor. I think it helps me as a CEO. I think uh, I see the world uh, certainly a little more optimistically than I used to. Um, you know, if you're only familiar with biology from Twitter, you might not take him for an optimist. Um, you know, he's he's talking usually talking about uh, something that's going wrong or an institution that's failing or something that's, you know, a problem in the news or, you know, how, how we're mismanaging, you know, the pandemic. Um, but I think, a lot of that, the foundation of all of that in his worldview, which I tried to capture here is optimism about the kind of future that we can have and the kind of impact technology can have. And just impatience with all the ways we're getting in our own way, you know, whether that's regulatory or cultural or, um, you know, policy, education, just cowardice of just not going for it as, as heavily as we could. Um, so I, I hope that people who pick this up feel, feel a sense of optimism, feel a sense of hope, feel a little better about the way things are going and the way that they can affect a positive change. Got it. And, uh, you know, I, I read a quote from uh, Scott Adams, who's the, who's the creator of Dilbert Comics, who said, like, most of the people are really good in one thing, but uh, mm -hmm. you could, if you were really good in two or three things, uh, you you could set yourself apart. But, you know, what I've seen on Balaji is really good in 
uh, in a lot of things like angel investing is, is a great in CEO politics. Um, you know, is a great author. Well, you, you know, do, do you think it make means that you should try a lot of different things uh, and you know try to learn in different ways? Because you talk about he talks about learn to think in multiple ways. Um, so, so do you think it? Uh, you know, you should try a lot of different things. Like you have also done, like with your, with your media podcast, with your uh, investing fund. I think so. I, I'm uh, the way I've phrased that to people is often, uh, you know, a, a sufficiently advanced generalist becomes a specialist. Like when you overlap enough different skills, you become something really, really unique instead of just a very sharp spear of a specialist in one direction. Um, I, you know, Balaji, I think is a good example of he stands out in terms of being mathematically literate and very sort of, um, and a good writer and persuasive and ability to extrapolate all these scientific ideas and parse them. He has got a really strong sort of scientific and mathematical foundation. Um, and that's the foundation of his worldview. And you'll see, you'll see him mix metaphors a lot in that book. You'll see him apply sort of mathematical terminology to something that feels, um, I don't know, it feels uncomfortable at first. <laughs> like uh, you, you don't necessarily know what that word means in that context. And if you, if you look it up or if you just try to like grok it a little more, you'll see that it's a really good metaphor. Um, and I think, you know, he, he talks at the end of the book, yes, learn to think in multiple ways, take mathematical concepts and take the way they're written and try to see them visually. Um, if they're already visual, try to turn them into a mathematic, uh, like in a math equation, try to write it as computer code and understand these concepts in as many ways as you can. And you'll sort of see different things in each of them. And I think it's a strong argument um, for fluency across a bunch of different disciplines. It's certainly given me an appreciation for, um, you know, the, the math education that I have though, you know, it, as we learn everything in education, it's also siloed and it would have been so great to get more synthesis and more applications of math to um, ac across different topics and, build a little more of that. I think people who study biology um, or walk some of the paths or read the books that he recommended in here will start to build more of that. And that's a real superpower, no matter what direction you're heading in. Right. Um, and, and, you know, something very interesting he pointed out is like money is a tool, but um, but he doesn't really optimize for it. But but would would this advice be valid for everyone? Because, you know, uh, we're trained to think like you, we need to make an X amount of money and then stay in a, in a you know, stable job, but he thinks very differently. So what is he optimizing uh, for? I would think he is optimizing, certainly at this point of his career, for for impact. Um, he's optimizing for long-term outcomes uh, that are for the better of humanity. Um, I think I think there is something to that. It's a little counterintuitive, um, but the more you focus on money, especially achieving some certain minimum threshold, actually the harder it becomes to achieve. And the people who get real outlier results are those who are doing something not for the money, right? And you see this in startup founders you back, right? If somebody comes in saying, um, oh, I think we can exit this company for $20 million. Like I just need a million dollar investment to get there. 
they've got dollar signs in their eyes and they're looking for that finish line and they're looking for that life-changing financial outcome. And that's actually a dangerous person to invest in as a venture investor. You want to see somebody who comes in with fire in their eyes for a 20-year vision who is going to look at a pile of $50 million that they could take home personally and be like, fuck that, I'm not taking that money. Like the mission is more important. I'm coming for that whole industry. I'm, I'm going to see this thing through and achieve the outcome that I want to see. I want to take this technology to its full potential or I want to finish the disruption that I started or something like that. That's not actually, they're not actually focused on the monetary outcome. Paradoxically, that's what tends to drive the greatest financial outcomes. In my opinion, there's certainly exceptions that probably prove the rule. Um, but I think it's a good heuristic um, to for your own life and for people you meet um, and how you understand different people's motivations. Very interesting. And, uh, you know, he also talks about value creation comes from technology, right? And, you know, mm. uh, Anderson Anderson talks about software, we'll eat the word, but how about industries like fashion industry as well as real estate industry? Do you think uh, these will be disrupted by technology or is it going to be, you know, high margin businesses, which will not be? One of my favorite lines in the book is... There is no technology industry. You know, every industry has technology, just like every industry has physics. You would yeah. never say, you know, the physics industry. It doesn't even make sense. And I talk to people who read this book and they say, I loved it, but am I supposed to just put this down and go become a tech founder? Like, that's not where my life is heading. Like, no problem. Like, whatever your job is, whatever your company is, whatever your industry is, Technology exists and there are ways to use new technologies to be better at your job, whatever it is. And I encourage you to use those. Those are small steps that move humanity forward every single day. So whether you work in fashion or accounting or farming, like these industries that you don't necessarily think of as a technology industry um, have tremendous opportunities and they're usually where other people aren't looking. I think something that's gotten conflated is software, the word software and the word technology. So people say like the tech industry and use it to mean, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google, Netflix, generally software companies like software is an industry. Technology pervades all industries and it's something to really, and it's a frontier of all those industries, right? We don't, we no longer really think of electricity as a technology, but at one point it was, um, we may no longer think of computers themselves, like the hardware as a technology, but quantum computers are, right? So it's not just what works, it's what's just on the edge of working, that line between new discovery, new application, new capability for humanity. And that is a really powerful frontier, both for the advancement of the species and it's where a lot of opportunity exists for individuals. So I do encourage people you know, to swim closer to that frontier and spend as much time near it as you can, even if it's just finding technologies and figuring out how to apply them to the industry uh, or the role or the company that you're already working on. Got it. And uh, another interesting uh, you know, chapter was about technology lower prices. And I think I started using ChatGPT and other AI tools for my podcast and it has really helped me. But but do you think AI would remove all, uh, you, know, you know, a lot of jobs like design jobs or, you know, uh, with a um, lot of low paying jobs? I think it's too soon to tell specifically what 
what jobs will be replaced by AI and what won't. I think it's very interesting. Almost the closer you are um, to working with AI, there's like a thin razor where it's like it'll either make you way more productive or it has a chance to replace you. And I think it behooves everyone to learn how to use the best new tools of their industry rather than try to ban it, right? We're seeing that in Hollywood, right? Like they, 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 all the actors like and writers had this great big strike where they were trying to figure out, trying to like keep AI out of Hollywood. And it's like, that's not the right approach. Um, the You may, some, you know, bottom 40% of writers who are doing not particularly imaginative work and just sort of cognitive day labor without soul in it might get replaced by the top 40% of writers who learn how to use these incredible new tools instead of hiring cognitive day labor. Um, but I do think it will be a net good over the long run for humanity, for sure. Uh, embracing new tools is almost always the right thing to do. There has been a spook about uh, employment and displacement with every new technology since the beginning of time. You know, what are all these people who are farming going to do now that we've invented tractors? What are all these people who are feeding horses going to do now that we've invented cars? There are always new jobs. We have an infinite dissatisfaction with wherever we are as humans. There will always be new desires. There will always be new things created. There will always be new needs. Those jobs are going to change. Um, and I don't uh, I don't think history tends to look kindly on the people who try to hold back that technological progress. Um, and people who are on the technology advancement side tend to be on the right side of history. Um, and that that is where abundance comes from. You know, one of the most important ideas, I think, in this book is the sense that, you know, we we would kind of all be crabs in a bucket, like, the the reason that you don't have to wake up and defend, you know, the food that you gathered the night before is, technology and the fundamental sort of the cooperation and the knowledge that we have collaborated to create has created this incredible abundance for all of us. And we have to respect what it's done for us. And we owe future generations to compound on that, to continue to advance technology, to create more abundance, more resources, grant more people the privileges that we had uh, and the rights that we had and keep expanding it. The converse is a dark, dark place. Um, and I don't think we want to go down it, but uh, you, you don't see that played out. Um, you just kind of hear, hear tribal yells and uh, fear for short-term unemployment. Um, but I, I hope I, that is one of my biggest hopes for this book is that it brings more people into that worldview, that technology is good, um, that we, Oh, what a huge debt of gratitude that it's a moral imperative to support it and respect it and vote for it and try new tools and invest in it. And please, self-driving cars are an amazing example right now, right? Like people are, truck drivers are worried, cab drivers are worried, Uber drivers are worried about the short-term unemployment. 10 years ago, when this was just a concept, everyone was like, oh my God, thank God self-driving cars are coming. They're going to save so many lives you know, hundreds of thousands of people every year die horrifically in car accidents. It's a tragedy. We can't let this go on. And now we have self-driving cars. They are safer than human drivers. And all you see is headlines complaining about it and unions protesting it and, you know, people running smear campaigns and smashing the windows and graffitiing these cars in San Francisco. It's it's insanity. It's, it's fucking crazy to me. Um, and from the perspective of those people 
in their fear or their short-sightedness are perpetuating the system where hundreds of thousands of people die tragically in car accidents rather than embracing technology that could save them and advancing it. That's heartbreaking. And again, history is not going to look kindly on those people. Um, but it's really difficult to suss that out in real time and soothe people's fears and show them that this is a better way forward. Right. Right. Interesting. And, uh, you know, you know, a couple of months back, Balaji made a big bet. He made a bet in March that Bitcoin would reach a million dollars in value within 90 days. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I wonder why he did that because, you know, a lot of people thought he did because of tension, but he's a big proponent of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but, but how does he look like uh, cryptocurrency? Do you think it's going to, uh, does he believe that it's going to, you know, um, uh, I mean, interchange money or, uh, or what, are you, what, are, what are his thoughts on yeah, there's a little bit about crypto in this book, especially in the context of uh, both sort of global governments um, and their various attempts to, you know, the power that they derive from having a currency, um, specifically the reserve currency of the of the planet. Um, there is also a sense of it giving individuals the freedom to opt out of that kind of system. Um, so that that bet was. I don't know if it's fair to call it a publicity stunt, but it was certainly attention grabbing um, and got headlines for a while. And it's really like a big thing that biology is talking about now in this moment is about the dangerous levels of inflation in the currency and the risks inherent in some of the banking systems and what the opportunities, what the options are. And to him, um, you know, Bitcoin, it represents the opportunity for people to protect the assets that they have in currencies that, um, might be losing some of their character. It's well outside my pay grade. You know, I'm not a macroeconomist. I don't know. You know, a lot of that is voodoo to me. Um, so I don't, I don't carry a strong opinion on it. He's done a bunch of great material on it for people that are interested and want to go deeper. Uh, but he's been early in crypto for a long time. He's an early investor in a lot of these coins. Um, he's, uh, it was at a conference recently with Vitalik and has supported Ethereum and, you know, there's a great book, um, Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital by Carlotta Perez that traces the pattern of a, the adoption of a new technology. And it takes decades. Um, you know, we're, we're still in the midst of it for mobile phones. Many of us saw it, most of it for the internet, but we tend to forget when we see a new currency or a new, um, a new technology like blockchain and cryptocurrency, that it's going to go through this multi-decade long cycle of, you know, boom, bust, disappointment, uh, quiet building, new deployments, crossing the chasm into mainstream. Um, all of these things are like rhyme, certainly with other examples in history. Um, so I think I'm still, you know, bullish on, on blockchain and cryptocurrency as a new technological advancement. Um, certainly not going to happen this year or next year in some immediately transformative mainstream way, but I do think we will continue to see it. And there are, are uh, what I hope are accessible plain English sort of descriptions in the book that give you a sense of the context that would drive it and what the outcomes would be of a society that adopts more, uh, more cryptocurrencies. Right. Got it. And, um, and, and uh, in the book, it also, it also talks about technology determines political order. Uh, does he mean about, you know, platforms like Twitter and, you know, social media channels, which are determining which, about political order? Uh, I was somehow wondering, you know, what, what, what was the context behind that? Oh, there's a really um, 
that's perhaps best understood through the lens of history, right? Um, so how political order changed when we went from hunter gatherers to once we invented steel or once we invented bows or once we invented um, deep sea navigation, like different technologies changed the, um, I Naval called it, maybe the logic of violence, something mm -hmm. like that, like how the how power is derived in a society in any given time is largely dependent on the technology. And so, you know, the, the politics of the time are downstream of the available technologies of the time and the culture is downstream of the politics usually. Um, and so when we see the like knights on horseback that are the byproduct of, you know, husbandry of horses and the ability to create steel armor, but it's rare enough that only some people have armor but anybody who has a knight and a, like or has a uh, an armored knight on horseback can basically take on an entire village. Um, you saw the logic of violence turn towards feudalism, and then when you saw the invention of gunpowder, and you know any man, woman, or child could kill a knight on horseback just with a gun, that changed the symmetry again. Um, so I think there's something to seeing the dominant technologies of the time and understanding how they impact the kind of world that we live in. And maybe most importantly, seeing that that's constantly in flux. You know, we don't tend to think of the political order as changing drastically in our lifetimes, but with the pace of acceleration and uh, the pace of change in technology, it's possible that it does. And new technologies could change sort of the, um, the inherent political order or the uh, culture pretty drastically. And we'll, we may live through a few technological changes that would impact that. Um, so I think this is worth understanding, even at a very high level, and just knowing what assumptions you live under that might, that might change um, at any given point in your life. Very in, in, interesting. And uh, you know, another thing which the book talked about was youth extension. Uh, um, mm. I'm quite a fan of Brian Johnson from Braintree. I think he's doing a very interesting experiment but do you think yeah. human beings can live up to 100, 120, 150 years, which, you know, Balaji talked about, uh, that this is something which we should try to solve? Yeah, I, I don't know, but I would love to find out, right? Um, I think there's a lot of interesting, there's a lot of interesting questions in there. Um, and as Balaji points out, like humans do not age like cars age. You know, we, we don't, we don't just fall apart um, on some like random schedule and some of us live to a thousand um we are genetically programmed to die just like we're genetically programmed to go through puberty um and it is possible to change that if we understand it um and nobody really knows what's through that door um you know brian johnson is running a fascinating experiment nobody really knows what the results are going to be maybe he'll live to 125 and i believe that would make him you know the longest living human ever maybe he'll live to 180. Like, I have no idea. Um, maybe like, there's just so many, um, there's so many fascinating unknowns. And we are in a very interesting place. I think, you know, those of us who are like, under 60, let's say, um, which most living people, our experience with technolo technological change has largely been computers, phones and digital like software has taken huge leaps and bounds. The internet has been incredible, but it's not like the generation that came before us that where we went from not flying to flying 
to spaceships, to landing on the moon, went through electrification, uh, went through the internal combustion engine and the creation of cars, like the true literal physical miracles that were considered impossible for millennia, like five, six, 10 of them, like were created all in one lifetime, which is mind blowing. And I think, you know, the last few decades, it's just less mind blowing to go from iPhone one to iPhone 15. It's incredible. It is a miracle if you, if you sit and think and respect, you know, the advancements that are happening, but it's a little less shocking than watching a plane fly for the first time or going to the moon. Um, and I think, you know, the nuclear is another great example. It's just a little more abstract. It's happening in that plant, you know, far away from there. And it takes a little bit of background to know that, oh my God, this tiny thing that's like the size of a gummy bear is generating enough electricity to power this whole town for this whole year. Um, that's mind blowing, but there's no reason we can't have, you know, a lot more nuclear power plants. We can't have energy that's too cheap to meter. We can have flying cities and flying cars and build new islands. And like, we can have this really incredible space of abundance. Um, and I hope that we start to live through more of those miracles. Um, and we're seeing more of them, I think now with robotics and drones and they're getting and self-driving cars are a great example, getting closer to touching our lives and reminding us that these miracles are possible and we need to keep investing in them and supporting them and appreciating them and respecting them and voting for them and welcoming them into our lives. And, uh, and the great things are on the other side of that, but we don't know, you know, we don't know if the human body or the human brain is capable of 150 or 200 or 300. We don't know if we can replace, uh, you know, if we can upload our neural patterns to a computer uh, and put an artificial head on a real body if your brain breaks down first, or if you can put a well-preserved, you know, brain or head onto a fully robotic body and have that go to 400. Um, it's just fascinating to see what will break down over what period of time with, you know, and what support we can give it. Maybe if you keep injecting something with stem cells, um, the brain can stay young forever because it's, you know, it has that self-healing pattern. Um, the fact that we don't know is the most fascinating thing. And I, I can't wait to just keep peeking through doors and seeing what's happening. And I think I wish there were a thousand Brian Johnson's running different playbooks and different blueprints and different experiments. And, um, I know, uh, you know, there's a lot of jokes about it and rightfully so, but it's, I deeply, deeply respect what he's doing and the philosophy behind it. And I salute it. And I hope, um, you know, I, I think we've become a little less adventurous, uh, a little less risk tolerant as a species. And I hope we see a lot more of that uh, kind of spirit come back. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think I read somewhere like when something weird is happening, like some people are really going towards climate tech or towards uh, Bitcoin. I think you should really pay attention as a, as a VC or as an investor or as a founder. Uh, so it remains to be seen in you know, what uh, what comes out of that experiment. Um, another interesting thing, which uh, which in the book talks about is six types of truths. And I thought, and he, he specifically says that you should be pursuing truth, health, and wealth in that order. And I thought he's going to say health, wealth, relationship, but he says truth, health, and wealth. <laughs> Why truth? Um, I, I, I like Balaji's take on truth. Um, if you can see, if you interact with him on Twitter, that truth is very fundamentally important to him. Um, he is, he is not afraid to be confrontational with people and it is, 
you know, in my generous interpretation, always in service of finding the truth. Uh, you know, you don't see a lot of people arguing on Twitter from a place of citations and graphs and, you know, supported with papers. And I think that's a testament to his goal, which is really to like get to the fundamental truth and the reality of the situation, no matter how uncomfortable and no matter who it's inconvenient for. Um, you know, I, I think he wants to create a good outcome for humanity and the shortest path to that is often pointing out uncomfortable truths. Um, the, the whole second, I mean, the subtitle of the book is technology, truth, and building the future. So the whole middle part of the book is really about truth. And it starts with triaging the different types of truth, which I found to be a really helpful exercise. I hadn't heard anyone articulate it like this before. And I think it's a really helpful thing. Um, so the ones he talks through, I think are scientific, technical, political, um, economic, and then cryptographic, which is where this kind of new blockchain technology is coming in. And the difference between, you know, fundamentally first, the difference between sort of like a scientific or a technical truth and a political truth is that scientific or technical are objective. You know, an alien might come to the same conclusion. How many atoms are there in this molecule? Um, there is an objective answer. What's the distance between the earth and the sun? Um, does the sun revolve around the earth or vice versa, right? Um, a political truth is something that we have just collectively on who's the leader who's the president that's not an objective truth that's a thing that we all believe and so we have created that truth where the border of a country is there's no borders on the map if an alien landed they wouldn't be able to redraw the borders that we have created on our planet um, so those are political truths and understanding um the difference and where those conflict uh necessarily like that's uh something not everybody appreciates those different kinds of truth um and then economic truth is, is an interesting uh, sort of subcategory, right? It's it, where objective truths and political truths sort of overlap. And there's an interesting story that he tells, which is why about why the USSR sort of lost its arms race to the US as a communist country. They were uh, a lot of the numbers and a lot of the stories, and a lot of the reports were not about the fundamental truth. The incentive was to put the right answer on the paper, not tell the fundamental truth about the story on the ground. And that the second and third order effects of all of those fabrications about the underlying reality sort of made the economy eventually fall apart. And capitalism, for whatever its faults are, incentivizes you to be correct about the reality and work towards improving it. Um, and so that that economic truth uh, also in includes this really interesting idea, which I think um, is express preference is the like economist term for it, but it's the difference between what people say is important to them and how they actually act. And that you're seeing that difference all over the place, right? You see people like claim virtues on social media. Um, and then if you examine the decisions that they're making in their real life, it doesn't always hold up to the things that they say they value. And Balaji points out that that is an inexhaustible source of startup ideas. And that when you see what people really do in their behavior, um, that'll give you a lot of business ideas that might not be obvious if you're only analyzing the things that they say. And if you create a company that, or a product or a service that is uh, tailored towards people, what they say they want, you could very well fail because you don't see the underlying reality of their actions and what they say and what they do don't always match up. Um, so I think those are like that section really um, pushes you in a lot of different directions. It challenges some of your preconceived notions and it really sets up 
um, what I think is a, a really interesting sort of analysis on, you know, the following chapters, which are about sort of how uh, the incentives that different forms of media have to get at those different types of truth, right? Um, and how we might uh, adjust our thinking and our media diets to reflect that. Yeah, I mean, I just want to follow up on that. I mean, he also mentioned like modern media is mis-maligned mis with the truth uh, and the future media is going to be decentralized. So do you think people will just stop watching TV and newspapers and, you know, just be this decentralized? I think it's possible over time, right? Um, I, I don't have, you know, any charts to, to show you, but um, certainly anecdotally in my circles, like people spend a lot less time watching TV and a lot more time on social media. Um, and there's a different, you know, media being misaligned with truth, like social media is misaligned in maybe a different way than cable news would be misaligned in a different way than newspapers are misaligned. All that, and it, I think the first sentence in that section is media is called media because it mediates your interpretation of reality. It's a shimmering mirror between, you know, your eyes, your ears, your brain, and what's really happening. And I hadn't really thought about it that way um, or spent too much time thinking about this, but man, you're, you know, the things that you ingest through your eyes and ears become the voices in your head. It becomes your beliefs. And most people are not very critically examining their media diet um, or seeing the, you know, it's not possible to see the nutritional facts of your media diet or to analyze it sort of dispassionately and see what are the ideas you're loading your head with. And you can see, I think we all have like an extreme friend who you're kind of like, how did you become as uh, opinionated as you are? How did you come to accumulate these views? Like, what are you, how, who are you? And how did you get to where you are? Um, and if you got to trace back, you know, every thing that scrolled past their phone for the last few years and run some algorithms on it, you could probably figure it out. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing, especially as it's driven by algorithms, we might see, increasing polarization like you can see more people becoming more extreme because they're in this we're not all watching you know the same news channel anymore we all have this highly personalized algorithm of information that's being in this personal cone of silence that's being fed to us and you might find that you've been like slowly become radicalized without even realizing it you're sitting next to a person who's kind of like staying in some middle normal part and examine critically examining their thing and you find out you know you guys have spent a year sitting next to each other and one of you's radicalized in one direction and one of you's just stayed the same and you're finding yourself confounded um so i think it really it behooves everybody to understand that you know whatever media you're consuming whether it's news or newspaper or social media or podcasts there's always an incentive there's always a misalignment with with a fundamental truth and you always have to apply sort of some windage to, you know, factor, some fuzz factor to whatever you're taking in and try to understand what the person who created that media's incentives are, you know, is it for page views? Is it for clicks? Is it for engagement? Um, and that's part of the reason, you know, I talked about this book as, as hopefully being a, um, a beacon of hope and creating some optimism. I think there's a real, it's a tragedy that uh, we respond so, so well to negative news. 
You know, people click on those negative headlines. We're genetically programmed to like suss out threats and look for that rustle in the bushes that might be a lion and click on that negative headline that, you know, might foretell doom. And when you do that multiple times every day, you get the sense that the world is heading this terrible direction and you become a pessimistic person. And that's, again, not maybe not the fundamental truth of the reality. Like the scientific truth is that we are learning more every single day. Like things are getting better. Violent crime is going down. Like the poverty levels tend to continue to decrease. The wage, the wealth gap might increase, but the condition of the poorest people tends to continue to get better. And there tend to be fewer of them, especially as a percentage of population. There's a lot of reasons to believe that tomorrow is better than today and that a few years from now is going to be even better. And I think optimism is self-reinforcing and so is pessimism. Um, and all of these many, I shouldn't say all, many media companies, many whether they're individuals or giant companies are just by following the incentive loop, perpetuating this pessimism um, and in order to maximize their page views and their profits, really contributing to the creation of this incredibly negative worldview um, and negative view of the future that I don't think is, I don't think it's accurate. And even more importantly, I don't think it's helpful. Um, I think it's counter it's counterproductive to creating a beneficial future. Um, it's creating something, we're creating a dystopia by believing, by, by talking about creating a dystopia. Um, and it's, uh, that's the scary part. Like if we talked about how good things were getting, um, I think they would get better. And if more people understood the, you know, the beautiful things that are on the other side of some of these doors and we're willing to open a few more of them and we're told how exciting it is to open doors and shown the beautiful rewards on the other side of them, we'd have more people running experiments like Brian Johnson are. We'd have more people pursuing, you know, technical degrees. We'd have more people researching. We'd have more people clamoring to be building new nuclear power plants or new robotics capabilities or new AI um, companions. Like everything you can imagine needs to be built. Um, like watch some sci-fi, get an idea, go on YouTube and start building. That's how so many great things started. Um, but it takes people believing that that it's possible and that it's a good and noble and morally important thing to do. And I hope that's what people take away from this. Um, even if you don't do anything about it, just know that it's possible and salute and respect and appreciate and support those who do go try to build something new. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And another interesting thing which Paladin you talked about is, you know, uh, the two ways to do innovation, which is Paladin way, which is not to go bankrupt and dark night mode, which is not to go banned. So if you're not as rich as Elon Musk, do you think one should go dark night mode, which is not to get banned? Or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think both both can work. I think if you're trying to pick your company, it's more important to understand the capital intensity of what you're taking on. Like, I think, um, you know, we tend to think of uh, Elon now as just being like the Tesla SpaceX guy. And people forget that he, you know, his first company when he was 17 or 18 was a software company that he sold and uh, made tens of millions of dollars. And then he started another software company and sold that one for hundreds of millions of dollars and rolled that money and that credibility into Tesla and SpaceX. Um, so I think, you know, if you're just starting out, software is a wonderful place to experiment because it's very low capital intensive, um, business and it's 
quick to iterate and you can build things quickly. You can get cash in the door. You don't have to hire a ton of people. You don't need a bunch of atoms and office space and all this crazy stuff. Um, so I think that's, that's maybe more important um, to understand when you're selecting, but certainly once you've chosen your thing, like understand what the biggest threat to your business is. And if it's regulation, um, yeah, I mean, you can certainly go the route of trying to get approved and navigate that. That's capital intensive just because it tends to be slow. Um, or you can go the Uber Airbnb approach, which is like, we're going to build the thing as quick as we possibly can. And we're going to make it legal by reaching scale incredibly quickly. And I think it's, um, you know, there's, there's a chapter in there where Biology talks about the tension between um, sort of outdated regulations that can't anticipate what technology makes newly possible. If you had had the idea for Uber and then sat down and read the law and been like, oh, that's illegal. I'm never going to start Uber. And we wouldn't have Uber. And that would be tragic because Uber is an enormously beneficial thing for humanity. And it accomplishes the goals that the regulators set out to do much better than the taxi medallion system, which had become this like old corrupt thing. Um, and the same thing with hotel inspectors, like what's better, every host and every guest creating a review before like the minute they leave the property because Airbnb incentivizes them to or hotel inspectors that are easily bribed and come by once a year, right? Like, um, but it takes, it takes a visionary to see through the law and see what's possible with technology and be willing to sort of play chicken with that gray area with the laws. Like this is, this is better. This is a better way to do this. And once I prove that people will love it and want it, I'm willing to run that gauntlet of, of making laws around it and forcing it to become legal. Um, because now we can't imagine like, you know, if somebody tried to ban Uber now, we'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. We all use that. We love that. Please bring that back. Um, we rely on that. Um, and same with Airbnb and the number of people whose livelihoods rely on it now. So um, learning to see and and just not take, um, you know, some of those false walls as as permanent roadblocks to something. If you, if you see a technology, you see a vision, you see a way to improve something, you know, um, you know, remembering those walls are made of paper, you can run right through them. Right, and uh, you know, the thing about Balaji is he, he's done his bachelor's, master's, PhD from Stanford, but he says like people with great credentials are low on price to performance ratio. But do you think mm. big name B schools will die out in the next 50 years? Because they, they have their network effects because you see uh, some of the large companies, uh, I mean, a lot of starters being built from uh, from these B schools. Do I think top B schools will die out in 50 years? No. Um, I think, I think the Lindy effect is, is, uh, is a good thing to go by. I think they're likely to be around. Um, you know, I think the perception of them may change in some subcultures. Um, and we may see that be happening in tech already. I mean, people, uh, people really rely on credibility and sorting mechanisms and shorthand ways to understand the, you know, the talent of the person standing in front of them. I don't think those are going out of style anytime soon. And I think the older ones are probably safer, um, you know, certainly than, than the newer ones. Um, and there's something to be said for that, whether it's an accurate reflection of those people is a different, is a different question and whether they're worth, you know, what you need to hire them for is an even diff more different question. Um, but I certainly don't think MBAs or, or, or higher ed in general, I think it's threatened in some interesting ways and different people may choose it for different reasons going forward. Um, but I think total institutional collapse 
of especially the top percent are is very unlikely um yeah the prices may change the bundles may change a lot more fewer people may choose to go there but i think the top ones are actually the safest um so yeah i think those are i think those institutions are are likely to be just fine um but i may be wrong so it was a very unpredictable world um but uh that that would be something something pretty big and pretty unexpected would have to happen for that to change, I would think. Right, and and you talk about Elon Musk, you know. I think one of my favorite books of this year was Elon Musk by Walter Isaacman, and and I, I and I thought whenever I'm having a bad day, I'll I'll think about Elon Musk. He's running six four thousand. <laughs> but but you your next book is about Elon Musk. Why a book on Elon? I mean, I think he's the greatest living entrepreneur. Um, I think the story was a little cleaner a few years ago before he did as quite as many crazy things. Um, and I think the, the Walter Isaacson book is an interesting, gives you a little more of the psychology behind how he, how extreme he is and how, you know, he's almost compulsively taking that next bet. I mean, his, his results are so extreme um, and seeing the whole the number of coin flips that he made it through and the number of tight squeezes. And, you know, I mean, he's like Indiana Jones. He's just at every, he's risked death and dismemberment and bankruptcy at an incredible number of times and made it through all of them. Um, and it's a huge testament to, I mean, he's incredibly talented. His work ethic is incredible. This is back to what we were talking about. Of like He puts the mission um, and the outcome above the financial you know if his if his main mission was to become the richest person on earth he would have made extremely different decisions at a number of very important junctures and you know he was he is willing i think he put his whole net worth on the line multiple times his whole substantial net worth on the line multiple times he doubled down on himself from a very young age um when the odds were against him and other people wouldn't wouldn't make the bets and I, I respect that level of skin in the game and dedication a lot. I respect the philosophical underpinnings of why he's doing what he's doing. I think he's incredibly mission-driven. Um, the results that he's gotten in terms of moving technologies forward, getting them deployed are pretty undeniable and incredibly, incredibly important. Um, I think, I, I hope I hope what the book does is shows more people how he thinks and how he makes decisions and enables them to bring some of that into their own life. You know, um, I, I think of sort of the series of books that I've done here, like the Almanac Naval is very, um, it's very philosophical. It's very high level. It gives you a really strong foundation for inner strength, inner peace, and understanding how to go move through the world and understand what's important and a foundation for building your own knowledge base. Biology is a little bit to kind of turn some of those philosophies and strategies into actions and tactics Here's more things specifically to go read. Here's how to start a company. Here's the kind of company that might have a really big impact. Here's how to find and suss out a new technology that could create an opportunity for a really strong new company. Here's how to see the fundamental base of reality, the truth of what's happening and interact with that core truth, not the false perception of what you think might be true, right? Um, so that's a little more tactical. And then what I hope the Elon book, which will be the third in the series does is really give you an extremely clear, like nitty gritty, like if Elon is the best company, the best, you know, tech entrepreneur alive, how does he do what he does? 
how can he, how does he think? How does he prioritize? How does he make decisions? What are the most important things to him? What kind of information is going through his head? How does he work on a day-to-day basis? How does he hire? Um, all of those things I think are, you know, if, if I can help a young person or an ambitious person of any age go from, you know, I don't know what's important in life and I don't know how to suss it out to through philosophy, through strategy, through tactics, through like very specific execution of making that dent in the world and using technology to move humanity forward. Like, I think that would be an incredible legacy. These are all books I wish I'd had at 18 years old and I might be a very different person if I'd had them. Um, And they will all be, you know, they'll all be freely available. I hope they reach every corner of the globe. I hope they reach millions and millions of people. I hope that they fertilize a new crop of technology entrepreneur and founder and builder that can make the next generations better off. Yeah. You know, they say you should not meet your heroes, but do you plan to meet Elon for, for the book? I would love to, if I get the opportunity, that would be, that'd be awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? What's my favorite business book? Yeah. Poor Charlie's Almanac. Got it. And, uh, you know, what's, what's your favorite online tool? ChatGPT. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you could go back in time when uh, you started writing the book, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? I'm very happy with the outcome. Um, I would have stressed much less about grammar, knowing that I was going to get professional publishing help and I did not have to... Uh, you know, the, the proofreader was coming to help me uh, would have been really nice to know. <laughs> Got it. Um, Eric, um, what, what's the best way people can reach out to you, uh, know more about Script Media and uh, about the new book, Anthology of Biology? Yeah, uh, my personal website is ejorgensen.com. That's got links to almost everything. Um, if you want to write a book uh, or you want us to help you publish a book that you have written, or you want us to write a book for you, uh, scribemedia.com. Uh, and I'm on Twitter basically all day um, at Eric Jorgensen. If you want to come say hi, slide in my DMs. Um, and the books the books are available uh, on Amazon, but you can also read free copies of them um, digitally on the book websites. And both of those are linked from my personal site. Awesome, awesome. This was really fun. Uh, I really enjoyed reading the book and I hope, again, it will do much better than your previous book. Um, congrats on, 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 on the launch. Uh, thank you so much. Thank for- I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Rohit. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.